Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode number 125 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist, and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice. We provide advice and assistance to employers and employees on all aspects of employment law, and that includes businesses, HR professionals, and as I say, individuals. So we do everything from HR processes, procedures, contracts, handbooks, right through to representation at the Employment Tribunal. So if you're listening to this podcast and you have any particular questions or you need any help or guidance with anything, then do get in touch. You can email me. It's alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk. Now, for those of you who listen regularly, you'll know that this podcast is about employment law and HR advice for employers. And each week I try to tackle a different topic or subject that might be of interest to you. And this week I'm dealing with a case, an employment appeal tribunal case regarding disability discrimination, which has some interesting facts and circumstances that I thought you might like to hear about. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. So the case I'm going to talk to you about is a case from the Employment Appeal Tribunal and it is Mr. F. Ahmed versus the Cardinal Hume Academies and Mr. Ahmed is the employee in the case and he was the one who brought the claims against his employer which is the Cardinal Hume Academies for discrimination, harassment and constructive dismissal. Now, the circumstances of Mr. Ahmed's case are that he was a trainee teacher and he'd been employed by the school um, to be a trainee teacher under something called the Teach First Scheme. Now, I understand that this is a fast track scheme to take people who have no teaching experience through the teaching qualification to become a qualified teacher. And Mr. Ahmed was coming into teaching as a second career and he had been diagnosed with dyspraxia, which he made known to teach first when he applied to them. The effects of Mr. Ahmed's dyspraxia are that he has difficulties with reading and handwriting and in particular um, he had difficulty writing for more than a few minutes at a time as it caused pain to his hands. And According to the judgment, he was honest with Teach First about this, but they hadn't passed on the information to the school, so it came as something of a surprise to the school when he started with them. Now, as part of the Teach First programme, Mr Ahmed was given uh, some mentors by Teach First, and he was apparently in communication with them and telling them how he had difficulties with his handwriting, and had requested to teach using a PowerPoint and a projector. Now, Mr. Ahmed accepted the offer of a job with the school in June 2016. And whilst it's not entirely clear when he started, it was sometime between June and September 2016 that he actually started working for the school. 
In August 2016, he'd had an occupational health report undertaken and he was certified as being fit for the job with Teach First and it was highlighted by the occupational health doctor that he would have handwriting issues and that there would be a requirement for a risk assessment and the occupational health doctor confirmed that his condition was likely to fall under the Equality Act. Now, what followed from the occupational health report and with Mr Ahmed's employment was that those persons in charge at the school, so the chief executive and the head teacher, were concerned about what the report had said about Mr Ahmed's abilities and whether he would be up to doing the job given that he would struggle to write uh, for any period of time. So they asked Mr Ahmed to attend meetings and the first meeting took place on the 7th of September 2016 and during that meeting a Mr Rowland who was the head teacher of the school raised various issues with Mr Ahmed about his job and his performance and whether he would be up to doing the job role and they weren't just about his dyspraxia apparently there were other issues about his commute and uh, some back and knee conditions. Now, there was a dispute about what was actually said and what took place at that meeting, but it became the subject of the key parts of the evidence for the claims here, in that Mr Ahmed was saying that Mr Rowland was insensitive and interrogated him in a negative and unconstructive manner, and Mr Rowland denied that he was insensitive. He said that he was merely trying to get to grips with the fact that Mr Ahmed could not write um, or could hardly write and that he had found it to be quite shocking given his experience as a teacher and his understanding of the job role. In any event, it was clear that Mr Ahmed was unhappy about the meeting and that the school were also concerned about his abilities and whether he would be fit for the role. Now, one thing that Mr Ahmed did between the meetings on the 7th of September and a subsequent meeting on the 8th of September, which formed part of the evidence here, was he sent a message to his mentors stating that the conversation had happened with Mr. Rowland and crucially he said the conversation was civil of course. Now this will be important and I'll talk about it when I talk about the judgment but this part of the evidence was quite crucial to Mr Ahmed's claims or really should I say the reason why Mr Ahmed's claims didn't succeed. Then on the 8th of September there was a further meeting between Mr Ahmed and Mr Rowland the head teacher and during that meeting Mr Rowland essentially suspended Mr Ahmed um, on the basis that They needed to work out what he was capable of doing and they needed some more time in order to consider that. And so they asked him to stay away from work whilst it was considered. A letter followed and Mr Ahmed was informed that he was being suspended following concerns over issues with his writing and that they would be looking into it. It was only a couple of days later on the 13th of September that Mr Rowland wrote to Mr Ahmed telling him that his suspension would cease on the 16th of September and that he should return to work on the 19th, so just for a short period of time. During that time, Mr Rowland and the chief executive of the school met with 
Mr. Scudamore, who was representing Teach First, and they expressed the view to him that they felt that Mr. Ahmed might be better suited to moving to a different type of teacher training known as Schools Direct, which is a program that means that he wouldn't have been on his own in the classroom. So he wouldn't have had sole responsibility for classes, which he did under the Teach First scheme. And apparently the two routes to qualification are slightly different and the Teach First is seen to be more prestigious than the Schools Direct route. So from Mr. Ahmed's perspective, it was seen as being less attractive to him to do the school's direct scheme, which is what was being suggested by the school. Mr. Ahmed subsequently wrote a formal grievance by way of email stating that he felt he'd been discriminated against by the school and that he had been subjected to harassment by Mr. Rowland, the head teacher, as a result of uh, insensitively interrogating him during the meeting on the 7th of September and that he was subsequently suspended without reasonable grounds. Later the same day, he also sent his letter of resignation, uh, again complaining of discrimination on the basis of his dyspraxia and related handwriting difficulties and alleged he'd been subject to harassment. Mr Ahmed then made claims in the Employment Tribunal and his claims were for direct discrimination, for discrimination arising from disability, for harassment and for constructive unfair dismissal. The Employment Tribunal concluded that there was no discrimination on behalf of the school and that there had been no fundamental breach of the implied term of trust and confidence. Therefore, all of Mr Ahmed's claims were rejected by the Employment Tribunal. He then subsequently appealed to the Employment Appeal Tribunal and the Appeal Tribunal went through the judgment from the previous tribunal and the grounds for appeal that were submitted by Mr Ahmed and on behalf of the school. Now the main part of the claim and the main part of the appeal process here relates to the claim for harassment which is under section 26 of the Equality Act and it's quite interesting in that it goes into each part of the Act and the different sections that have to be fulfilled and considered by an employment tribunal in order to make a finding of harassment. So if I just read it to you, this is what section 26 says. So it's section 26.1. A person A harasses another B if A engages in unwanted conduct related to a relevant protected characteristic and the conduct has the purpose or effect of violating B's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for B. And section 2 says, A also harasses B if A engages in unwanted conduct of a sexual nature and the conduct has the purpose or effect referred to in sections 1 and B above. Now the part that would be considered by the Employment Tribunal and the Appeal Tribunal is in 26.4 which says, in deciding whether conduct has the effect referred to in subsection 1b, so that is just for the employment tribunal when deciding whether the conduct violates B's dignity or creates an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment for B, 
Each of the following must be taken into account. So the employment tribunal must take into account, firstly, the perception of B, so the perception of the employee, B, the the other circumstances of the case, and C, whether it is reasonable for the conduct to have that effect. And then it lists the relevant protected characteristics, one of which is disability, which was claimed here. And there was no dispute about whether Mr. Ahmed had a disability, um, which is something that can often come up in discrimination and harassment cases. It can be a point of dispute between the parties. But here, the Employment Tribunal were able to take it that he was disabled and to move through the various criteria for deciding harassment. So Mr. Ahmed's appeal focused really on section 26.1b and 26.4, as I was just describing, in that they stated the tribunal erred in law in that it failed to apply the provisions of 26.1b and 26.4 of the Equality Act in considering whether there had been harassment. In particular, it is said that the tribunal erred in applying as a determinative test the question of whether it was reasonable for the conduct to be regarded as constituting harassment, instead of recognising that the question was just one of three mandatory factors to be taken into account in deciding whether conduct has the effect set out in section 26.1b. So what they're saying there is the tribunal had made an error in their decision making by using as a determinative test the question of whether it was reasonable for the conduct to be regarded as constituting harassment, instead of looking at the three mandatory factors, which are, as described before, the perception of the employee, the other circumstance of the case, and then finally whether it is reasonable for that conduct to have the effect. So what that really means in law is that it's not just sufficient for the conduct to have the effect on the employee. It has to be looked at in the reasonableness of the case. What the Employment Appeal Tribunal did was look at a previous judgment from a case of Pemberton versus Inwood, which was the Court of Appeal case in which this issue of harassment and how you reach the conclusion was considered. And within that judgment... They basically broke it down. So the first question is a subjective one. So whether the victim perceives themselves to have suffered the effect in question. Now that's fine. They can reach that conclusion. But whether it was reasonable then for the conduct to be regarded as having that effect. So the objective question. So as I say, while somebody may be able to get over the hurdle and say, for them, they perceived it to have the effect in question, to be harassment, Whereas if anybody else looking at it would have said reasonably and it wouldn't have been harassment, if you look at it objectively, then the employee can't succeed with the claim for harassment. And the tribunal at the first instance had concluded that in all the circumstances, it was not reasonable for Mr. Rowland's questioning and the manner of questioning at the meeting on the 7th of September to be regarded as harassment within the section 26.4. So the tribunal had taken into consideration how Mr. Ahmed had felt about it and the other circumstances of the case, but then had concluded that in any event, it wasn't reasonable to say that Mr. Rowland's conduct at that meeting constituted harassment. Interestingly, the employment tribunal also found that Mr. Ahmed himself 
didn't perceive it as being something which would violate his dignity, create an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment because he had sent that message to his mentors where he referred to the meeting as being civil. So you'll remember when I was talking about the facts of the case, I mentioned that his message to his mentors was quite crucial to the downfall of his case. And that was to say that because of that, the Employment Tribunal were not convinced that he himself had the perception of harassment for that meeting. And therefore they decided whilst he didn't have perception, and even if he had, it wasn't reasonable for the conduct to have that effect. So it wasn't reasonable for him to conclude that the meeting with Mr. Rowland on the 7th of September had been harassment. Now, in relation to his claims for direct disability discrimination, Mr. Ahmed was arguing that the Employment Tribunal had failed to take into consideration the fact that he had been suspended because of his disability when in fact they had reached the conclusion that he was suspended because of his difficulty in handwriting and hand pain. And what the Employment Appeal Tribunal said was that his difficulty in handwriting and hand pain were not a disability within the meaning of the Equality Act, but rather they were an adverse effect of the disability. So they concluded that his difficulty in handwriting and hand pain is not a description of the physical or mental impairment having that effect, but rather there was an unidentified physical or mental impairment. And that wasn't the reason for his dismissal. The reason was the effect of his impairment, if you like. So whilst I've gone into a fair bit of law there, and I don't mean to overly complicate things, but I thought it was important to break down the different sections and how it applies in this case. In short, it's quite an interesting case because it does provide an element of confidence to employers to be able to have the kinds of conversations that the school were having with Mr Ahmed here about his ability and the impact on his job role and that sort of thing. Because ultimately, the Employment Tribunal and Appeal Tribunal concluded that whilst Mr Ahmed may have been offended by the discussions that took place and was clearly unhappy about being suspended, that in itself did not amount to harassment as it wasn't unreasonable for them to do that and to take that approach or to suspend him whilst they were investigating the issue. They had acted reasonably in a reasonable manner in the way in which they dealt with it and whilst Mr Ahmed's physical pain and his writing or lack of writing by hand were the reasons for his suspension, that in itself was not the disability and therefore to suspend him for that could not be direct discrimination because they were in fact the adverse effect of his disability. I know from talking to business owners and HR professionals that it can become quite tricky to handle situations where somebody has a disability and as long as you deal with it appropriately, you can do so. And obviously in this case, Mr. Ahmed made a claim in the employment tribunal anyway, and you can never stop employees or ex-employees from making claims. But what you can do is protect yourself by behaving in a reasonable manner and trying to handle it within the law. 
but also trying to tackle the issue for your business or organization in a way that's appropriate as well. One of the other points I want to note from this case is that there was an occupational health report undertaken at a very early stage in the process and therefore the employer was able to act with knowledge and having had medical advice to follow. And so I always recommend where there is an issue about disability or potentially for somebody's physical capabilities of doing a job role and mental capabilities, should I say, then you should obtain an occupational health report as soon as possible because only then can you make an informed decision about what the employee can and cannot do rather than trying to speculate or make guesses or based on your own views and opinions. Of course, if you have any questions about the case or about harassment in relation to any of the protected characteristics, and I'm very happy to discuss those, you can get in touch. We do offer an initial free telephone appointment, so you can have an initial call at no cost to you. And thereafter, if you want some further advice and assistance, we can give you a fixed fee quote um, in most cases. Um, So it doesn't have to be preclusively expensive to get legal advice. And certainly we are very happy to chat with you on the phone. You can get in touch and arrange an appointment by contacting me. My name's Alison Colley and my email is alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk or alternatively, if you want to contact the office, then if you just send an email to admin at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk, then we can get that set up for you. Finally, before I sign off, I just want to remind you that we do have a document shop available for you if you're looking for a particular policy or procedure and you just want something that's easy to download you know that it's going to be checked over or has been checked over by somebody legal with legal experience Um, all of the procedures and policies that we have have been put together by myself or the team here at Real Employment or Advice and we have one which I talked about in the podcast in the last couple of episodes which is the group messenger policy so if you would like to add a group messenger policy to bring your handbooks up to date with most recent technologies and methods of communication. You can find that on the website. It's adviceforemployers.co.uk and that's forward slash DIY hyphen document hyphen shop. And it's available on there to download for just £36. So that's everything for me for this week. I do hope that you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. And as always, do continue to get in touch with me. Send me your questions, LinkedIn connections, or anything like that. I would really look forward to hearing from you and I love to hear from listeners. It's great to know that people are actually listening when you're sitting here recording, staring into a blank screen. So it's lovely to hear from you. Um, As always, you can get in touch with me, Alison, at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. Many thanks and have a great week. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you, that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast, but please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.